Amen, amen. As you're sitting down, go ahead and take your Bibles out and turn in them to John chapter eight. John chapter eight. We're gonna be looking at verses 12 through 30 today. If you've been paying attention at all, you may have noticed maybe in your small group curriculum that you guys have been going through or maybe just as we've been coming here on the weekends and you're looking at these passages and you're going, well, wait a second, Nate. Like you, you skipped a whole paragraph here in my Bible. What's up with the skipped paragraph? Well, I'm glad you asked. We're gonna talk about that. We're gonna talk about that this morning. And last week, so last week, uh, I asked you to use your imaginations and all the imagination people say, amen, amen. Like we loved using our imaginations last week and that was good and we need to do that every week. Today, for the first part of this, of this time together, I wanna, I wanna ask all of the geeks in our midst to, to celebrate with me as we're gonna do some geeky stuff here for a little bit. So you'll be happy today. The imagination people were happy. It was funny, after first service I had one of said geeks come up to me and go, oh, that was just amazing. I love that. So, so bear with me. I've got a little geek in me too. So we're going to go through this. And I, the reason we're going to go through this is for this reason. This is really, really, really important for us to know. And you're going to, I think, see why here. This is an important conversation for us to have around God's word and God's word that we have in our hands. Um, and in fact, uh, some of you at the end of this this may cause you to have more questions than answers. And, and I just wanna let you know, that's okay. That's okay. And I'm even gonna give you some extra resources here for you to consider at the end. But the reason we're doing this today is because I don't know when we will, as a faith family, be going through the Gospel of John again. And so I wanna make sure we stop on this and we talk about it, okay? All right, start with a statement. Here's the statement. Most modern evangelical translators commentators and biblical scholars agree that John chapter seven, verse 53 to John eight, verse 11, was not originally part of the gospel of John. All right, I'm gonna say that again. Most modern evangelical translators, commentators, and biblical scholars agree that this paragraph was not originally part of the gospel of John. It was added later by someone else that's not John, and therefore is not part of scripture, okay? So now, a little bit of background to help us understand what's happening here. The first is this. This is our doctrinal statement on scripture here at Radiant. We believe the 66 books of the Old and New Testament to be the full record of God's self-disclosure to mankind. Different men, while writing according to their own styles and personalities, were supernaturally moved along by the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit to record God's very words inerrant in the original writings. And, and you may already be hearing something. You're like, well, Nate, hold on. We don't have the original writing. We don't have the actual paper <laughs> on which John penned these words from the Lord. And frankly, I think that's really good because if we did have them be in humanity the way we are, we'd make it really weird. And we'd do these pilgrimage all over the place so that we could find these and find a way to bow down to them just like we tend to do with some translations of scriptures now. So it's good that we don't have them in that way. But, but then wait, how do I think about this? 
All right, so first, before we talk about this paragraph, a little bit about how we get our copies of Scripture, okay? It involves this, uh, textual criticism. Textual criticism, don't think of this like uh, criticizing, okay? Textual criticism is the science that is utilized to evaluate ancient texts. It's, it's the hard work of, of compiling and comparing and harmonizing manuscript evidence in order to work back to the original text. We do this with all ancient texts, okay? But here's what's cool about the Bible, and particularly, since we're here in John, about the New Testament. We have over 5,000 New Testament Greek manuscripts, whether in partial or complete form, available to us today. That's why I called this hard work. Most other ancient texts have a couple dozen, or maybe at most there's a couple that have a couple hundred, not 5,000 plus manuscripts. This is a gift from God as he providentially preserves his word across the generations, okay? Now, there are many variations, in fact, thousands of variations across those manuscripts. Because if you remember, before the 15th century, the Bible was copied by hand. That's how it was passed down. And, and most, most of these variations are insignificant. They're due to copier errors, such as punctuation and spelling and uh, letters that are flipped backwards just as someone does that in their writing or um, order differences to words that are matched up, okay? But this right here in John chapter eight and then the ending of Mark, Mark 16, the last 11 verses of Mark. Those are the two most significant portions of variation in our Bibles. And that's why I wanna talk about them today, okay? So that's a little background. Now, this paragraph, why not? Why do you believe, Nate, that this paragraph is not in Scripture? It's not meant to be here. All right, five reasons. Okay, we'll put them up here. One, the oldest manuscripts don't have it. The oldest manuscripts don't have that. The earliest, or as we think about it in history, backwards, the oldest manuscripts, Greek manuscripts, do not contain this passage. It doesn't show up until about the 5th century. And that's why most modern scholarly translations are gonna put either brackets around this or your Bible may have a footnote in there telling you that this is, the, this is the case, okay? Two, the oldest people don't talk about it. The oldest people don't talk about it. The early church fathers didn't mention this passage until almost the 12th century. They tend to go in their commentary straight from uh, 752, the material there, into 812, Okay, three, it likes to move around. It likes to move around. I call this the incredible moving paragraph. Uh, where this paragraph does show up in manuscripts, it shows up in different places. Three different places in John, and then a couple times in manuscript evidence, it shows up in, in Luke twice, which is super fascinating, which is actually, that's actually why most people, although they agree this is not part of scripture, they believe that it probably did happen. It's probably historical, but it's not canonical. It's not meant to be in the inspired word of God. And the reason they believe that is because someone more than likely was saying this happened. This happened and this is such a good story. It's gotta go in here somewhere. How about here? 
wait, no, it didn't fit there. How about, how about here? Maybe it's better over here. Okay, I, I think this passage of scripture is actually what we see talked about at the end of John. In John 20, verse 21, it says this, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. He did them historically, but they weren't meant to be in scripture. Fourth reason why this is, I believe this is not in scripture. It sounds different. It sounds completely different, actually. The vocabulary and the style in this paragraph differ from the rest of the gospel of John. There are words and phrases used here that he doesn't use anywhere else. Five, it interrupts the storyline. The narrative flow from 752 to 812, which we'll see here in a minute, it's interrupted by this passage in in an awkward way that doesn't fit at all in the flow of the text, okay? So those are the five reasons. Two quotes to end this. Not quite to end it. I got some more to say. (laughs) D.A. Carson, a renowned biblical scholar, says this. Despite the best efforts of Zane Hodges, another really smart person who actually disagreed with him, to prove that this narrative was originally part of John's gospel, the evidence against him and the modern English version, the evidence is against him, and modern English versions are right to rule it off from the rest of the text or to relegate it to a footnote. Bruce Metzger, biblical scholar and probably the foremost textual critic of our generation said this. The evidence for the non-Johannine, that just means Apostle John, okay? The the evidence for the non-John origin of this pericope, this paragraph of the adulteress is overwhelming. It was not written by John and so therefore does not actually belong in the text here and it was added by someone later. So in light of all that, that's just skimming the surface, all right? I'm gonna give you some additional resources here in a minute, but how do we think about this? Because you might be like, well, no. (laughs) Well, if I can't trust this, how can I trust any of God's word? Like, what what do I do with this, Nate? All right, a few ways to help us think about this. First, a quote by Greg Gilbert. I'm gonna recommend his book to you here in a minute. He says this, rightly, he says this, not a single doctrine of Orthodox Christianity depends solely on a questionable portion of the biblical text. That's huge. Not a single doctrine of Orthodox Christianity depends solely on a questionable portion of the biblical text, okay? So if this paragraph is left out of here, it changes nothing about the Christian faith. It changes nothing about the gospel of John. His message is intact. But I'd like to say similarly, if this paragraph stays here, there's nothing in this paragraph that is contrary to the rest of scripture. And it's important to say that because sometimes, right, we hear all the time, well, this should be part of scripture and this should be part of scripture and this should be part of scripture. And you read it and you're like, that's wonky. That doesn't track with anything that we see in God's word. Like that obviously is different and that is not the case for this paragraph either, okay? So so rather than discourage us, I believe we should actually be encouraged by these things. In his providence, the Lord has left us with a wealth of evidence 
so that we can be confident that we have an accurate record of God's word. The scribes, the translators, the text critics over time have done careful, grueling, and beautiful work with the gifts that God has given them. That's why, that's why in your Bible, this is probably in brackets or footnoted because they're being that careful. They're like, you need to know that this did show up in some manuscripts, but we don't believe it was meant to be here because of the oldest, the earliest manuscripts. And so they put that right in front of you and don't try to hide it because they're trying to be faithful to this. But, even with all of that, this is hard for some of us, isn't it? Oh, it's hard for me. You wanna know why? I love this story. It's so good. It shows Jesus's authority and his compassion and his forgiveness. And I love it when he sticks it to the religious leaders. And he does that again here. But just because I like it doesn't mean that it's supposed to be here. Okay, and that's important for us to remember. So again, okay, how do you decide if you're gonna preach it or not? All right, um, first, prayer and study, a lot of it. And then getting to a point where I'm like, I, I do believe with those that are saying this, that this is not intended to be scripture. And therefore, if it's not, then I am not gonna preach it. And you might be like, but Nate, it is in some of the manuscripts. And although some scholars agree they could be wrong, you could be wrong, you're right. And here's what I say to that, I take seriously the fact that one day I will stand before our Savior and I will give an account for how I fed his sheep. And when I do that one day, and we had this conversation yesterday, <laughs> When I do that one day, my hope would be that I would say, listen, Lord, Lord, I didn't believe it was supposed to be there. I couldn't preach it in faith. And so I tried to be careful as opposed to, Lord, I had reason to believe it might not, it might not supposed to be there, but I just preached it anyway. I said it was you anyway, not, not that, not that, okay? All right, let's end this geeky session like this. Uh, this week, this week, at the end of the week, we're going to send out with our weekly, our weekly uh, email to the all church with some of you. That just blew your mind. You're like, I get an email every week from the church. <laughs> yes, you do. You should read it. It's probably in your spam folder. So go ahead and find that. This week, when we send that out to you, we're going to include a link. And, and the link there is going to be a link to a scholarly article that deals with this paragraph particularly. It deals with the arguments for it, the arguments against it, why this, why that. And it's thick sledden. But if you're interested in looking some more into that, this will be a great article for you. So check that out. Also, uh, when we send out this email, we're going to send you the name and the author of this book, Why Trust the Bible by Greg Gilbert. Why Trust the Bible by Greg Gilbert. I'll have it up here afterwards in case you want that. This is an incredible resource. Um, he deals with translations and why we have so many translations, not only in English, but around the world. How do we get our copies? How do we know which books were meant to be in the Bible? How do we get the canon, how do I know I can actually trust the Bible? 
amazing resource. It's, it's 140 pages long. It's, they're small pages and it's big words, okay? And, it's, and he's, he's written it very accessible. He said he was, he was shooting for about a 15-year-old comprehension level when he read it. And, and I wanna commend it to you. In fact, um, I wanna ask you if you would, whether you're in high school on up, so high school to eternity, all right? If you would at some point in this next year, read this book, okay? Why trust the Bible? Greg Gilbert. It's about $10 on Amazon. It's worth the investment in here. And I think as a church, if we go through this as a church, it will bolster our faith, first of all. Make us more like Jesus as it, as it explains to us why exactly we can trust the Lord in his word. But on top of that, on top of that, this will equip us to have better conversations with our neighbors, with our coworkers, and with our classmates. You know why? This is a question they're asking. If they're thinking about faith at all, the big question they've got for you is, well, you guys base so much on the Bible. Why can I trust the Bible? I've heard it's corrupt. I've heard it's filled with all kinds of inconsistencies. Why do I trust the Bible? This will help you have that conversation and even, and even be able to say, hey, I've read this book. I wanna give it to you. Or do you wanna read it with me, okay? So will you read this? This is what I hope we will do and I'll check in in a couple months. Will you read this in the next year to bolster your faith and so that we can be equipped together to increasingly and more effectively and by faith permeate the west side of Indianapolis with the hope of the gospel, okay? I commend that to you. It'll be up here afterwards. Take 15 minutes a day, away from video games and read it. You'll get through it in about a month, maybe 15 minutes away from the evening news, okay? Maybe read it with your family or maybe your small group could go through it together and do that, okay? Let's do it. All right. Geeky portion, done. Chapter eight, verse 12. Father, help us now as we dive into your word. Reveal yourself to us in a fresh way even this morning, Lord. Teach us. Help us to see more of you and draw closer to us through this time. And may we walk away amazed by you in your precious name. Amen. Amen. All right. Chapter 8, verse 12. Let's read this. Um, Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but we'll have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony's not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony's true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going. You do not know where I came from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one in that manner. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment's true. For it's not I alone who judge but I am the father who sent me. In your law, it's written that the testimony of two people is true. I'm the one that bears witness about myself and the father who sent me bears witness about me. And they said to him, therefore, where's your father? 
And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. And these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. All right, verse 12. I am the light of the world. This is the second of seven really big I am statements that Jesus makes in the gospel of John that refer back to Exodus 3.14 when the Lord reveals who he is in his name. But sometimes as we look at these seven big I am statements, I think we often miss about 20 little ones that he makes that are more subtle between them. And we're going to see a couple in this paragraph, but, or in this, uh, this section. So far, we've seen that he says, I am the bread of life. He said, I am on the water. As he's walking on the water, he says, I am, don't be afraid. Last week, we saw, I am the fulfillment of the feast. I am the rock of salvation. And so here we are now, and Jesus is proclaiming, I am the light of the world. And the again here, at the beginning of verse 12, and in verse 20, the locator that shows that this is taking place in the treasury, which was near the women's court in the, in the temple. These two things tell us that this is still connected back to last week's text. This is still happening during the feast of booths or the feast of tabernacles. And if you remember last week, we talked about the water ritual that took place during the feast. Well, similarly, there was this ritual done during the feast around light. And it was, in, it was incredible. Uh, on the first evening of the feast at the beginning, uh, they would light these four huge lamps or torches in the temple courtyard. Okay? They would be so high that they had to climb ladders to get up on top of them. And there were these big bowls that held the oil that they would light. And the light that came from these was so bright that people said it lit up all of Jerusalem. And they would keep them lit all week long. And then each evening, people would come into the temple, into this courtyard. They would bring their own lights. So they would bring candles and there would be dancing and singing and celebrating underneath these lights every single night. And all of this to remember and to celebrate that the Lord led them through the wilderness during the day by a pillar of cloud and at night by a pillar of fire. And you can read about that in Exodus chapter 13. And this, this I am statement that Jesus is making, it's happening here Either, either on the last evening underneath these lights or it possibly could have happened on the last evening after the feast was over when they extinguished these lights and the temple in Jerusalem is again plunged into darkness. And in that moment, Jesus says, I am the light. And I'm not just the light of Jerusalem, I'm the light of the world. He's saying, I fulfill what all of this pointed to, which is Isaiah 9.2. Isaiah 9.2 says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. 
And and I think in this too, Jesus is also pointing us forward to the last days, to his to his return that we see spelled out for us in, in Revelation 21, in the new heavens, the new earth, the new, the new Jerusalem. Here's what it says. Tell me you don't see the connections here. Verse 22 of chapter uh, 21 of Revelation says this, and I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the almighty, the lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. That's incredible. One day his light will will shine in such a way that there will be need to be no more light. And that light is a picture of how Jesus as the light is the revelation of God to the world. And his light, his light drives back the darkness of our sins. And just like God's people followed God's light in the wilderness, that same way he's saying, if you will follow me, my light, you will not walk in darkness, but you will have light in you that produces life eternal. So, so now John chapter six, seven, and eight have talked about manna in the wilderness, the water in the wilderness, and now light. All of God's wilderness provisions, we're told here, all pointed to Jesus. Isn't that amazing how God just fits redemptive history together? It's kind of like he planned it or something. And your Bible is just completely so connected. It's just, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Keep going. Verse 21. And he said to them again, I am going away. Where is he going? He's going to die. He's going to rise from the dead and he's going to ascend back to heaven. I'm going away and you will, you will seek me. That's interesting because he's saying, I'm going away and you're going to continue seeking the Messiah to no avail because you rejected him when, you, when he was here. You're looking for someone that has already come. I'm going away and you'll seek me and you will die in your sin, particularly one sin, specifically here, the sin of unbelief. And where I'm going, you cannot come. Why not? Why can't we go where you're going, Lord? Because our sin, our sin still separates us from a holy God because they rejected the one who came offering to reconcile them to God. And so they are unable to go where he is going. Verse 22, so the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. And he said to them, you are from below. I'm from above. You're from this world. I'm not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins because, look at this, because unless, that's a, that's a beautiful unless, because unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. I am he. And unless, unless, if you will believe you won't die in your sins. If you believe, you will have eternal life. I love this. There's no add-ons. 
None. It's, it's not believe and follow the law. It's not believe and go to church every single Sunday. It's not believe and get yourself all cleaned up before you come to me. It's not believe and never struggle with sin or doubt ever, ever, ever again. It's not believe and dress and act this certain way. It's not believe and read from this particular translation of scripture. None of that by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. Period. No add-ons. Trusting Jesus is not like flying allegiant. <laughs> Trusting Jesus is not like flying. This is raw right now. This is raw. Trusting Jesus is not like flying on a discount airline. We just got tickets. We just got tickets this week. Go see my family after Christmas, okay? And I was like, oh, the tickets are so cheap. Look at this. Sir, sir, would you like a carry-on? Like, yes, I'd love a carry-on. That'd be $50. Sir, would you, like, would you like checked baggage? Yes, because most places you go in the world require you bring clothing with you. I would, yes, that'd be $50, sir. Sir, would you like water? Well, can I bring my Fiji with me onto the plane? And they're like, no, that's frowned upon. Okay, I'd like water, that'll be an extra charge, sir. Sir, would you like air on the plane? That will be an extra charge. Sir, do you have appendages? How many do you have? That will be an extra charge for each one of those. Sir, would you like a plane to travel across the United States to get someplace? Yes, I would. That'll be an extra charge. It's, oh, it's exhausting. Not like that. Not with Jesus. Flat rate. <laughs> Believe, period. And you will have eternal life. And, and we've said before, haven't we? Following Jesus is hard. He's the king. He requires your obedience. But we obey from. We obey as an overflow of our salvation, we do not obey to earn anything. We have earned nothing. We simply open up our hands and say, you are the trustworthy one and I believe in you. Let's finish these verses, verse 25. So they said to him, who are you? <laughs> Jesus said, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge. And the, the idea there is, but I won't right now. But he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world only what I heard from him. And they didn't understand that he'd been speaking to them about the father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up, when you have crucified the son of man, then you will know I am he. And that I, I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak just as the father taught me. And he who sent me is with me and he has not left me alone because I always do the things that are pleasing to him. He lived the perfect life that we are incapable of living. And verse 30, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Uh, go back to verse 21. And I wanna end for a second thinking about this. And here's why. There's three words in this passage that really haunted me this week on some different fronts. And I'm like, and I think we need to, I think it would do us well to meditate on, on them ourselves as we finish off this morning. Verse 21 says, so he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die. You will 
you will die. And he thought it so important that he reminded them of their fragility and the fact that they were destined to die in their sins at this point because they hadn't believed in him. You, I, will die. And you're like, well, that's kind of a morbid thing to think about, Nate. It is, but it's reality. And, and it's essential that we stop for a minute to consider this. And maybe there's even some of you that because of the circumstances in your life this past week, this has been very near. It's important that just like this text that we talked about here at the beginning, it's important we just don't skim past these words and, and live our life pretending as if death isn't a reality. Um, I uh, looked up this week, 57 million people a year will die in our world. It's 157 people, 157,000 people a day, about 6,500 an hour. That's about two people per second pass into eternity. That's unbelievable. And if you're an especially empathetic person, that can, that can even be crushing as you think about that. Here's the thing, if you're here and you don't yet know Christ as your savior, similar to these people that he was talking to here in, in verse 21, listen to me, you are not guaranteed tomorrow. You are not guaranteed tonight. And you probably have seen enough of life to realize that. Why do I say that? Because that means today is the day to believe. Today is the day of salvation. It is not wait till tomorrow. It is not a year from now. I'll think about these things. You have no control over that timetable. Today is the day he'll save you if you'll place your trust in him. If you're here and you're a believer, the rest of us, I, I think about Ephesians chapter five. Ephesians chapter five, it says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of your time because the days are evil. We're not guaranteed, believer, tomorrow. We've been given eternal life. Our eternity is secure. We are living in that life already right now, but God sovereignly for his good purposes has you now in this life, but he only has you in this life for but a moment, but a whisper of eternity. And I wonder if it's, if it's helpful for us to even ask this question of ourselves this week. What, what is one thing that I should do differently in my life knowing that my time and others' time is limited. What, what needs to change in my priorities, grasping that my time here that God has given me and others' time here, it's coming to an end. Oh, boy, we, we need to want to seize every opportunity in this life to live for God's glory, shouldn't we? And just share our redemption story as much as we possibly even could. You know, I looked it up and 57 million people a year will pass into eternity, will die, yes. But also 140 million people will be born 
That's five babies a second. Oh, new life springing in. That's hundreds of millions of people a year that we have an opportunity to go to and to live out what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus and to share with our words what it means to place our trust in him. What an opportunity. Uh, They're saying, they're estimating in the next 10 years, the earth's population will grow by 1 billion people. A billion people that need to hear the gospel and receive Jesus Christ. And if you drive through Avon, you're feeling that growth. It's happening right here around us. God is bringing the nations even to us. Will we live our lives like they matter because they do? And tell people, tell people this beautiful unless unless you believe that he is the Christ. You will die in your sins. Trust him today. Jesus is the light of the world. And scripture clearly shows us that him being the light of the world now as his followers, as the church, it's our role to reflect his light in the midst of a dark world. Um, Next week, uh, during our services, uh, we're gonna come up from John for the week for a bit and be in some other texts. In your small groups, you're gonna keep going. So you're gonna do the rest of John chapter eight next week, okay? So keep going in that. But we're gonna be in some different passages of scripture next Sunday. And the reason is this, I want to talk with you a little bit about how the Lord has been at work amongst our leadership. Uh, Praying and dreaming about some exciting direction for us as a faith family. Because as a local church, we want to be seeking to use the best way, our time that God has given us. And so next week, we're gonna talk about some direction for us as a local church, as we seek to permeate the west side of Indianapolis with the hope of the gospel. So I hope you're here every week, but be here next week. I look forward to sharing some of that with you. Let's pray and then we'll worship before we leave. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you. That faith in you is a flat rate. You have paid the price and we can believe and receive eternal life through you, Lord. Thank you for that gift. Lord, would you, if there's anyone here who does not yet know you as the Savior, would they recognize now by your spirit at work in them that today is the day of salvation, that today is their opportunity to turn away from what they've been pursuing as their God in this life, and to turn to you, the one true God. Would they be saved? Lord, would you help us? Would you help us even as we evaluate our lives this week? This time you have given us in this world, Lord, it is hard, but it is precious time. And you've 
meant it for us. You've placed us in it at a particular point for a particular reason, Lord. And that reason is to live for your glory and for the spread of your gospel. And so would we, would you help us to be faithfully walking that way, wisely, daily, looking for those opportunities, living for your glory, growing in Christ-likeness, walking in relationship with you, Lord, right where you've called us to be and doing what you've called us to do. Help. Help us as a church to shine. Help us as a church to drive back the darkness with your light, Lord. You are incredible. We love you in your name.